What do you think? There was a man who had two sons. He went to the first and said, Son, go and work today in the vineyard. I will not, he answered. But later he changed his mind and went. Then the father went to the other son and said the same thing. He answered, I will, sir, but he did not go. Which of the two did what his father wanted? The first, they answered. I selected this chart for service this morning, and after the reading of, of the book of Matthew, chapter 21, verse 38, uh, 28 through 32, uh, the, the reading involves two young men, apparently young men, and uh, they were being told by their father to go work in his vineyard in that text. One of the young men said, I, I will not do it. So I'm going to call him, I will not. The other young fellow says, I will, and he did not. So we'll call him, I, I will. Now we'll get back to these two fellows after a while, but that's basically what we're talking, what we're going to be talking about, because these two young men knew exactly what their father wanted. It wasn't as if they had to say, Dad, where do you want us to go? What do you want us to do? What do you have in mind? Their father said, go work in the vineyard. They knew exactly what they wanted, what their father wanted them to do. It was never a question. Their problem was they didn't feel like it. They didn't feel like going to work. One of them didn't. Both of them didn't, as a matter of fact. The first one said, I'm not going to go. Why not? Sometimes during our Younger days, Bonnie and I would get the kids out of, out of bed and say, let's go to school. And they'd say, we don't feel like it. And they didn't want to go. Well, we made them go, of course. Sometimes kids will say, okay, I'm going to school, and they won't go. They'll, they'll uh, play hooky. Sometimes we get up in the morning and we say, I don't feel like doing this. And we don't do it. We know what we have to do. We don't have to get any information. We don't have to have written instructions. We know what we need to do, but we say, I don't feel like it. So we don't do it. Sometimes we see what we need to do and we say, well, we're going to do it, but we never get around to it. We procrastinate or we just don't do it at all. This greeting that we usually have with one another is, how are you feeling today? Now, Emily Post was a woman who spoke about and wrote about etiquette. Now, many of you may remember her and may not. She died in 1960, but her children and her grandchildren and her great-grandchildren have taken over where she had left off. And, and she published a book of etiquette, and I think it's now in its 18th publication. So it's, it's continued on, and the kids are still continuing in this vein, but Emily Post was the last word in etiquette what you should do and shouldn't do. And so I'm thinking, well, if Emily was around today, she'd probably say, Bill, you shouldn't ask that question. How are you feeling today? Because most of us are feeling a little uneasy. We're feeling a little threatened. Maybe the specter of doctors and nurses in, in hazmat gear on television, and maybe the idea of having to wear a mask everywhere we go, wash our hands every time we think about it, and, and use uh, disinfectants, and we're, we're concerned about a virus, we're, we're a little bit anxious about this. So 
if we were to ask the question, how are you feeling today, we're probably a little bit anxious about what's going on. So let's not ask that question. Let's ask the question of how are you feeling today emotionally. Let's ask that one. And this gives us an idea of what we're talking about when we, when we talk about asking emotionally. Uh, aside from our current situation, how are you getting along? If I ask you that question and I know something about your background, I may be asking you how are you getting along health-wise? How are you feeling health, health-wise? Are, are, you, uh, are you getting any better? Have you had problems, health problems? How are you feeling physically? How are you feeling relationally? In other words, do you feel isolated? So I'm talking about your emotional complex. And yet at the same time, when I ask that question, I'm not sure I really want to know. The the idea of how are you doing as a a question usually is, is just sort of a it's sort of a polite way of addressing each other, and it's a two-part question. The second part is the answer, fine. How are you? Fine. How are you? Fine. So we don't really want to get any deeper than that, and it may be that uh, when we ask a question like that, it's not just out of curiosity, but we feel like we can be supportive. If you're feeling bad health-wise, maybe we can help you. If you're feeling bad emotionally, maybe... We can help you. But basically, it's more of a, a courtesy, a comment in passing. We may not really want to know how you're feeling in these ways because we feel inadequate to help and unable to find the right words, for instance, even to sympathize with you in your situation. These are legitimate concerns about feelings, emotions. Let's get to the subject I want to talk about. How do you feel about God? That's what I want to talk about. Not how are you feeling health-wise. Not how how are you feeling physically. Not how are you feeling emotionally. Although you have a wide spectrum of emotions, you, you could probably tell me about. But I'm saying, how do you feel about God? And the first thing I want to say is, that I I believe I'm addressing believers. I'm not addressing atheists. I'm not addressing unbelievers. I'm not addressing agnostics. I'm addressing those of you who believe in God. You believe in God, and you believe in Jesus Christ. So when I ask you, how do you feel about God? I'm asking you because I, I think you know about God, and I think you know you have a responsibility to direct your feelings toward God. You know that, for instance, that He's your Creator. Genesis 1 and verse 1. God created the heavens and the earth, and He created us. And that's what's stated in Malachi chapter 2 at verse 10. says, Have we not all one Father? Has not God created us all? Well, yes, He has. Ecclesiastes chapter 12 at verse 1 says, Remember now your Creator in the days of your youth. Before the, he said, do this before the evil days come or the years draw nigh when you, you shall say, I have no pleasure in them. So we recognize that we should be, we should be thinking about how we feel t- 
toward God. I'm not saying how we feel about God. There's a difference. I'm saying how do we feel toward God? Isaiah used an illustration that I think is appropriate for us. In Isaiah chapter 29, verse 16, he's talking about how that God is a potter and we are the clay. And that God, because He is our Creator, He can make us in the form He wants us. So He molds us. So He says, Surely the turning of things upside down shall be esteemed as the potter's clay, for shall the work say of him that made it, he made me not? Or shall the thing framed say of him that framed it, he had no understanding? So he knew what he was doing when he made me. And he made me so that I'm an intelligent being and that I can not only have understanding, have a mind to grasp material things, but also that I can have feelings, that I can feel things about him. When I was a little guy, Back in Texas, in a little town in Texas, we had a forward-thinking art teacher who taught us how to use clay. So we made clay objects. And at that time, a lot of people smoked. As a matter of fact, most, most families had smokers in the family. And so we made lots of ashtrays. And we put them in the kills and we, we painted them and so forth. But I, I knew what I was making. I had the understanding of what I was making. And I made it the way I wanted to. Now, God knows what kind of person we are, and so He makes us in the form that He wants us. And in that context, He has told us who He is and what He wants us to do. Now, He's conveyed that, and we have, the, we have a big illustration of it, of course, in the Old Testament. When God first conveyed all of His information and instructions to a nation, he took the nation of Israel and took them into the wilderness and on the way he went up on a mountain and he brought Moses up with him and let all of Israel down below, 520,000 fighting men. So there was probably several million people there. But he took Moses up on the mountain and he says, I'm going to tell you what I want you to do. And what did he do? He wrote it in tables of stone. If I want to know what you want me to do because of certain situations, you may say, well, maybe I better write it down. Bonnie does this all the time. Maybe I better write it down for you so you won't forget. So God wrote it down. And it, He actually wrote it in tables of stone. And later on, when everything was written, it wasn't just the Ten Commandments, but later on in Joshua chapter 8, verse 34 and 35, the text says afterwards, talking about Joshua, he read all the words of the law, the blessings and curses according to all that is written in the book of the law. There was not a word that Moses commanded, which Joshua read not before all the congregation of Israel, with the women and the little ones and the strangers that were conversant among them. So much so that Paul could say later on in Romans chapter 10 at verse 19, he said, did not Israel know? My point is that they knew. They knew what God wanted them to do. So when he said, do this, if they didn't do that, it wasn't because they didn't know better. It was because of their feelings. They're feeling, well, I don't want to. Or I will. 
It's either I will or I won't. The young ruler in the, in the New Testament, when this is referred again to us, the young ruler in the New Testament, in Luke 18, verse 18 through 20, Jesus was talking to him. And this young ruler asked Jesus and said, Good Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said unto him, Why call me good? None is good save one, that is God. You know the commandments. Wow. You know the commandments. It wasn't a question of whether or not they knew them or didn't know them. But they did not do them. They had the commandments. Now we have a depiction of it. The Ten Commandments written in stone. I often wonder why they're written in stone. Maybe because God said, I'm going to put them down in such a way that you can't erase them. There they are. You have to see them. You have to know them. And so God, with His finger, wrote them in the, in the two tables of stone. And then they wrote everything else. Moses wrote down everything else that God instructed him to write. And then they put them away in the Ark of the Covenant and carried them with them everywhere they went. So Israel's problem with God did not arise because they were ignorant of what He wanted them to do, but it arose because of their feelings toward God. There's two parts to us. One is the knowledge of the mind. We know we know what right and wrong is. And the other is whether or not we really want to do it. That's our feelings. In the New Testament, the same thing is true. We have the New Testament in written form. He revealed His commandments to us as Christians in the New Covenant. In Hebrews 8, at verse 8, he, through verse 12, He says, He, he, he said uh, that, that uh, he, He's not going to have everyone teach His neighbor and his brother saying, Know the law, for they shall all know me from the least to the greatest, because he revealed his will. It doesn't take much for us to get into the New Testament and find out what God wants us to do. It's so simple, and it's so obvious. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, at verse 6, he says, We speak the wisdom of God among them that are perfect, Yet not the wisdom of this world, nor of the princes of this world that has come to naught. We speak the wisdom of God in a mystery. So at one time it was clouded. He said, even the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the world unto our glory, which none of the princes of this world knew. So there were things in the Old Testament that God hid and called a mystery. And they had to do with Jesus Christ. So when Jesus came, he unfolded the mystery and he unraveled it and he said, here's what, it, here's what it's all about. And when God inspired the apostles to preach the gospel, that's what they were doing. They were unraveling the mystery and setting it forth. He said, for had they known it, that is the people in the Old Testament, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, I has not seen nor ear heard, neither has entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for them that love Him. But God has revealed them unto us. God has revealed them unto us. So if anybody wants to know what God wants them to do, what Jesus wants them to do, it's a simple thing to open the Bible and read the New Testament and read the words. What kind of excuse would I have then? 1 Corinthians 14.37 says, If any man thinks himself to be a prophet or spiritual, let him acknowledge that the things I write unto you are the commandments of the Lord. How far did these things go? Maybe you've heard of a man by the name of Livingston and Stanley. Livingston 
was intent upon trying to destroy the, the slave trade in Africa. And he was also wanting to, and probably his primary goal was to see if he could, he could find the headwaters of the Nile River. And so he made several, several uh, trips up that way. And after, after a while, he kind of got lost in the wilderness. And, uh, and uh, Stanley came looking for him. And we're told that in one situation in particular that Stanley ran into, he, he was traveling uh, on the water in a, uh, a, a boat of some nature with his party. And they had to come ashore. And when they did, they came ashore to a place that uh, where a number of cannibals lived, a tribe of cannibals. And they were very scary-looking people. And what stunned Stanley was the chief brought him into his tent or whatever, his dwelling place, and he had a Bible. He had a New Testament. And he said, can you read this for me? Now, when a person wants to hear the Word of God, there's somebody there, somebody is going to give them a copy of the New Testament. That's what happened to this guy. That's wonderful, isn't it? Anyway, that, that happened. It, it's, it's, it's easy for us to get a copy of the New Testament to find out what God wants us to do. And this is where we decide, when we read the New Testament, this is where we make the decision whether or not we're going to do what God says to do or not do it. And that's because of how we feel toward God. That's, that's, always been the, that's always been the problem with us. Whether or not we're going to emotionally get ourselves involved with God. I know you, you may hear from a lot of people that there's no such thing as your emotions separate from your mind. But that's not what the Bible says. In, uh, the Bible tells us in Matthew chapter 22, verse 36 and 37, that we love God with all our heart, mind, and soul. So there is such a thing as our heart and our mind and our soul. And the mind is not, not the heart. They're not the same. You, have, you, you take your information, knowledge, you get information, and in your mind you disseminate that information, you separate it out, you figure it out, and finally you lock onto it and you know what, what is right and what's wrong and what you should and shouldn't be doing. That's what your mind tells you. Your heart tells you whether or not you're going to do it or not do it. That's the difference. That's, that's, what's, going, that's what's always gone on in our relationship with God. Gen- Genesis 6, 6 says, God saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil. The imaginations and the thoughts of his heart. Well, you say, maybe he didn't know right from wrong. That's not true. Romans chapter 2 verse 14 says, For when the Gentiles, the nations, which have not the law, do by nature the things contained in the law, these having not the law are a law unto themselves, which show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and their thoughts of meanwhile accusing or else excusing one another. The point is, once you know what's right or wrong, you then decide whether or not you're going to act on it, one way or the other. And it's your emotions that are going to tell you what to do. 
So we could, we could uh, illustrate it this way. The mind is an engine. And it moves. And the heart, the feelings, is the fuel for the engine. So the engine is not going to do anything until the fuel comes into it and says, let's go this way. And we do. So I can find out what God wants me to do. And then I can decide whether or not I'm going to do it. Now that's not my mind. That's my heart. That's my feelings. I can, I, can, I can discriminate between right and wrong, but then it's my feelings that tells me whether or not which, which direction I want to go. Let's, let's, let's follow this just a little bit. We have some good examples in the Old Testament of this. And one of the best is uh, Moses and Aaron, when they went to bring the children of Israel under God's direction out of Egypt and underneath the, from underneath the thumb of Pharaoh. And so God sent them to Pharaoh, Moses and his brother Aaron, and said, Tell Pharaoh to let my people go. And Exodus chapter 5, verse 1 and 2 says, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the Lord of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast unto me in the wilderness. And Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord, that I should obey his voice, to let Israel go? I know not the Lord, neither will I let Israel go. He said, I don't know who you're talking about. So Moses and Aaron described him for them. Described him to, to uh, Pharaoh. This began an effort then on the, on the part of Moses and Aaron to extract Israel from Egypt and bring them into the promised land. And it, it started a struggle between God and Pharaoh. Moses and Aaron and Pharaoh. Now, who is this God? So Moses told him who he was. God of Israel. I am that I am. And Pharaoh said, I'm, I'm not going to do it. Now, Moses then threw his rod down and it became a serpent. And the magicians did the same thing. And they, had a, they began to have a, a contest. After a while, Moses said, okay, so that you'll know that God is the God of heaven and earth, he turned the water and the rivers into blood. And the magicians performed a little trick and they did some of the same thing. So, Mo, so it says that uh, Pharaoh hardened his heart. He knew God. Now, now he was getting acquainted with God. But at the same time he's saying, I'm not going to do what you want me to do. Why? Because God was asking him to do something and telling him to do something Pharaoh did not want to do. No, he said, like one of the boys. Remember the boys that we started out with? Go work in my vineyard. One young fellow said, I'm not going. Not me. That's what Pharaoh said. Not me. I'm not. So the next thing he did, he, he said, he, he filled the rivers with frogs. And the magicians performed a little bit of magic too. And they got some frogs going. And then it just kept getting worse and worse. And they he filled the land with flies, which... Magicians couldn't do. Then, then with lice, and then with murrain on the cattle, and then with boils on everybody, and so forth. And and it just kept getting worse and worse for Pharaoh. It was not as if Pharaoh did not understand who God was. Now then, he became acquainted with God, but he still said, "No." 
His heart told him, I'm not going to do it. What God was asking Pharaoh to do was something Pharaoh didn't want to do. Pharaoh knew that the children of Israel provided the wealth for his nation. And when God said, let my people go, they were servants, they were slaves. Pharaoh said, no, I will not. It was his heart speaking, not his head. Because he could see the devastating results from him objecting to what God said to do. He was feeling the power of God's fist. In Exodus chapter 7, verse 2 and 3, it says, Speak unto Pharaoh that he sends the children of Israel out of his land, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart and multiply my signs and my wonders in the land of Egypt, but Pharaoh will not hearken unto you. Why was his heart being hardened? Because God was saying, do this, and Pharaoh was saying, I don't want to do that. And so that's the way God was hardening his heart. It's not as if God said, I'm going to make you a different man, Pharaoh. He was just doing something Pharaoh didn't, asking Pharaoh to do something Pharaoh didn't want to do. He, didn't, would not, he did not want to give up his, his prosperity. In chapter 14, after they left the land of Egypt and started out across the, uh, to the Sinai Peninsula, and they were starting across the Red Sea, in chapter 14 of Exodus, verse 17 and 18, Behold, he said, I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians, and they shall follow them, and I will get my honor upon Pharaoh, and upon all his hosts, upon his chariots, and upon his horsemen, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. They found out who God was. They knew, and yet at the same time, they said, No, uh, I'm not going to bow to this. I'm not going to do it. That happened not with just not with Pharaoh, but it happened with all of Israel. Same thing happened to them. When, when God was leading Israel through the wilderness, he, he was providing everything for them, and yet at the same time, they were hardening their hearts. They were saying, I don't want to do what you want me to do, what you ask me to do. It's not as if they didn't know who he was. So it wasn't a matter of knowledge. Hebrews chapter 3 verse 7 says, Wherefore, as the, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you will hear His voice, harden not your hearts, as in the provocation, in the day of temptation, in the wilderness, when your fathers tempted me, proved me, saw my works forty years. Wherefore, I was, gro- I was grieved with that generation, and said, They do not, they, they, uh, they do not know my ways. Well, they knew God. They knew what He wanted but they weren't willing to do what he asked them to do. And Jesus mentioned this too when he came to this earth. He said, In them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah, which says, By hearing ye shall hear, shall not understand, seeing ye shall see, and shall not perceive. This people's heart is waxed gross, and their ears are dull of hearing, their eyes they have closed, lest at any time they should see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and should understand with their heart, and should be converted." So it it got the heart involved in this. It is foolhardy to us to believe that we can relate to God on a purely intellectual basis. To relate to God intellectually. We spend a lot of time educating ourselves intellectually, don't we? 
We we like to we like to get our kids through grammar school, like to get them through secondary school, like to get them into high school, get them through high school, get them into college, into graduate degree programs, so forth. Get educated, learn all you can, educate the mind. What about the heart? What about the emotions? Well, we we know that that the emotions stand apart from the heart. Because you can tell somebody something, or you can hear something yourself, and you can know what it is at the same time. Reject it emotionally. Your feelings are different. It, it, uh, we could just easily, as easily decide to ignore God as we can to not believe in Him. God wants me to be involved emotionally. That's, that's my point, really. There are several ways we are emotionally involved with God. Several ways. And let me start out with the fact that, that I recognize, and you do too, that most of our emotions are temporary. They're transient. They come and they go, like the weather. Some things provoke them. When the provocation ends, the emotions end. So we can always say things like that, like this, you'll get over it, whatever it is your emotion involved in. We know you will. Because emotions pass. They don't stay with us. They're, they're, not, they're not permanent. used to be that uh, before we, modern medicine took over, our emotions were classified as humors. H-U-M-O-U-R-S, humors. And they were classified from, from very dark humor to very light humor, white humor. Anyway all in between, and they thought it had something to do with the blood. So if you had a black mood, a dark mood, you had a dark humor. Not, not a sense of humor, but they were, they were saying these were moods. And so the, our ancestors thought that that's, that's the way it worked, but we know differently. We know that uh, with time we can get over whatever emotion we're caught up in. If we're caught up in a bad emotion, when we feel down, we know eventually we'll feel back up. Sometimes the weather gets us down. When the weather changes, we come back up. You see what I'm talking about? Emotions change. Now, if your emotions stick around, when the impetus is gone, then you probably need to think in terms of maybe it's physical. Maybe you need to consult a doctor. Maybe your, your uh, chemistry is out of balance. So if you're always down and feeling blue and, and uh, forlorn, maybe it has something to do with your chemical imbalance. If you're always feeling giddy and on top of the world for no reason, the same thing is true. Our emotions are controlled by our environment. Whatever happens and what, whatever goes on with us, we, we, can, we can be dejected, we can be sour, we can be crabby, angry, excited, anxious, uneasy, dreadful. We can feel all of these things, but we should understand that most of the emotions that God has given us come and go. They come and go. They're not permanent. You're feeling anxious now about what's going on in our society. That will pass. And you'll feel different. But there are some emotions that God says are permanent, and I want you to keep these. Don't get rid of these. These will help you. These are good for you. And the first one I've mentioned to you 
is reverence, respect. Now, it's, it's kind of hard for young parents today to teach kids respect because our society, the society we live in now, has almost lost its concept of respect for older adults, respect for institutions, respect for the flag, respect for our society, respect for others and the privacy of others and private property. But... God said that we need to have respect and reverence, especially toward Him. In the book of Exodus, in chapter 3 at verse 5, when Moses first encountered God, he was a, God was in a burning bush. And Moses approached the burning bush. And, and he said to Moses, he said, Draw not near here. Don't get close. Then he said, Put off your shoes from your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. And Moses had to take his shoes off to stand on that ground. That strikes people as kind of odd, doesn't it? Take your shoes off. Uh, it's always been that. I'm, I'm, I'm sure that we, we uh, in our society, have not recognized it as much as it's, it's been around. But it's been around for a long time. Uh, it was a it was a, a matter of respect for people to take their shoes off before they came in someone else's dwelling place, because you're taking the dirt and the and the detritus from your shoes into somebody's house where they live. I'm not sure that's what was going on here, but God said take your shoes off, and probably He wanted him to stand on the same ground that God was standing on, and so He said, "This is holy ground. Have some reverence for what's going on here." Some indication of this, and of course it's, it's again a passing thing, but uh, when I grew up, when a man came into a house, he took his hat off. Came into a public place, you took your hat off. You didn't wear a hat. Baseball cap, cowboy cap, cowboy hat, whatever it was, you took your hat off when you came inside a house. It, that, doesn't, that doesn't go on all the time. But it was a matter, it was a sign of respect, a signal of respect. Or when a lady comes into the room, a man stands up. That's the way we, we were taught. These were matters of respect for us. In that time, in that day and age, respect was reverence, and that's what we need to have toward God. He is our Father. He's God. He's not one of the boys. He's not someone we treat as just anyone on the street. He's not a pal that we throw our arm around and say, Hey, how's it going today? That's not God. God is so far above us that we need to take our shoes off, basically. We need to stand in reverence to God and say, God, we're nothing. What is man that you're mindful of him? Or the son of man that, it, that you esteem him? So we, we have to have a feeling of reverence. And it's not just when you come in a church building because God is with us all the time. We need to respect him. Some kids nowadays don't respect their parents. They treat them like an equal. And when we start treating God like an equal, we're out of order. Here's, here's a feeling we should have toward God that sticks with us. It's not transient. doesn't come and go. The weather doesn't affect it. It's because we know that He is God and we're man. He's up there. We're down here. And when we approach Him, we approach Him 
with reverence. Luke chapter 5, verse 8, when Jesus was in the boat with Peter and Simon and his brothers, James and John, they pulled in the large draft of fish. Peter fell down. He knew he was in the presence of God. And he fell down at the feet of Jesus. He said, Lord, depart from me. I am a sinful man. Now that's, that was respect. He respected Jesus. Of course, when uh, Pilate stuck the crown of thorns on Jesus' brow, he had no respect for him at all. And when the chief priests and the elders cried out for his blood and say, Away with him. And they, asked, they offered Barnabas or, or Barsabas instead of him on the cross. They disrespected Jesus, for sure. No reverence for him. Chapter 19, at verse 10 in the book of Revelation, the Apostle John was receiving revelations from an angel, and John all of a sudden realized he was in the presence of someone that had power and authority, and he fell, to, fell down to worship him. And yet the angel said, don't do it. I'm, 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 I'm like you. I'm, I'm an angel. I'm a messenger. Don't worship me. That's an emotion of reverence that we should have any time we approach the presence of God. Privately, publicly, wherever we're approaching God, we approach Him with the, with the spirit of, and the emotion of reverence. Fear is also an emotion that God said we need to keep around. Keep on the premises. It, it is, uh, it, we're, we're told that it's a fearful thing to fall in the hands of the living God. Ecclesiastes 12.13 says, Let's hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep His commandments. This is the whole duty of, of man. God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it's good or, or evil. We know Him, the writer of Hebrews said in Hebrews 10, verse 30 and 31. We know Him that said, Vengeance belongs unto me, I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord shall judge His people. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So fear is a good thing for us. And it is something we should have. However, it is that emotion that has to be tempered by our respect for deity, for God, as our Father. So we don't walk around all the time with our heart full of fear unless we have done something that we shouldn't do and we face judgment for something that we should not do. Because the more we get acquainted with God, we're told that perfect love casts out fear. In Second John or First John chapter four and at verse eighteen. So we we progress in our fear toward God. We progress from being small children, not really knowing all about God. We're fearful of Him, just like we are of parents as we're growing up. Then as we get older, that fear develops into love. But without the fear, there's no love. It works itself up to that point. So if you're doing what your parents told you to do because you're afraid of them, you haven't progressed as far as you should be. But if you do what your parents tell you to do because you love them, then your fear has progressed into love. Guilt is another emotion that God says is, is good for us. There's no human being who can claim impunity from a life that's full of mistakes. We've all made mistakes. We've all performed wrong actions. 
and we've all done wrong gestures or wrong thoughts, wrong words. We've done wrong things. Guilt drives us to make amends. Now that's an emotion. If I feel guilty, I need to have that relieved. If I've done something wrong to you, if I've hurt you, then I can relieve that guilt by making that right. If I've done something wrong to God, then that guilt is relieved when something goes right. But it's a feeling. And it's a feeling because because I'm sorry for what I've done. I'm guilty. I know I'm wrong. And now how do I get it right? Acts chapter 17 and verse 30 says, The time of this ignorance God winked at, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. Now why would I repent? Because I feel guilty, basically. It's a feeling I have. It's, it's not something intellectually. I know I've done wrong, but until I actually feel that I've done wrong, it's not going to work. But when I feel that I'm wrong, then I get sorrowful. I'm sorry for what I've done, and that will drive me to repentance. Second Corinthians 7 verse 10 says, Godly sorrow works repentance to salvation, not to be repented of, but the sorrow of this world works death. Okay, so my guilt can drive me into the arms of Jesus. And He can relieve that guilt because I can be saved and I can have my sins forgiven through faith, repentance, confession, baptism. Because Jesus arose again the third day, I have that hope. Oh, there's another one. Hope. That's an emotion. The soul will wither in the presence of despair and grief without hope. We need the expectation that things in our lives will improve. We need that. Even in this day of, in times of the, the, uh, the pandemic of COVID-19, we need the hope that it's going to find, we're going to find a cure. We need that hope when we know it's there. Knowing that there is life after death is an essential part for a healthy heart. Blessed be the God of our Father and Lord, God, God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to His abundant mercy has begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. A living hope. I need a hope. I, I won't get out of bed in the morning if I don't have hope. Neither will you. <laughs> if you, you talk about a downer, if you don't have any hope, you're not going anywhere. You're not going to do anything. You're not going to feel like doing anything. But when you feel the hope of God in your heart that everything will get better, and by the way, everything will get better. It will get better. God has made that promise. He's given us our hope, and He says it's an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and enters into that within the veil. Our hope is the anchor that holds us against the driving winds of the sea. And it's also the buoy that brings our head to the surface of the water so we can we can breathe when we feel like we're in despair and we're sinking. Hope brings us about brings us back and takes care of us both as an anchor and as a buoy in our hearts. And of course you know that faith is an emotion. It's an emotion. It's that confidence that we have in God. Uh, being justified by faith, Paul said in Romans chapter 5, verse 1, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. 
Faith is just not an intellectual understanding. Faith is something that commits your heart. You feel that God is trustworthy. You feel that Jesus lived and died. You know he did. A lot of people know he did. But, but many, many people, even though they know it, they feel nothing toward God. They have no feeling toward God. That, that's faith. They don't have faith in Him. If you don't, if your faith does not move you to do the will of God, it's because you have not the feeling of faith. That's what faith is. Ephesians 3.19 says, And to know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge that you might be filled with all the fullness of God. Now, our faith presents us to Jesus Christ, and we know the love of God that passes the knowledge, and we have that most enduring type of faith, and that is the faith that brings us into the loving arms of God. 1 Corinthians 13, 13 says, And now abides faith, hope, and charity. These three, but the greatest of these is charity, and that's the word love. So we're looking for a feeling. And the feeling we're looking for is that of love. Eventually, and these are feelings that we need in order to relate to God. I can understand everything God has to say, but if I have no feeling toward Him, you can have a feeling about Him, but you need a feeling toward Him. You need a feeling toward Him. And that feeling, gratitude, faith, fear, Guilt, hope, faith, these are feelings that are necessary in this whole milieu of your relationship to God, not just knowing about Him, not just knowing what He, what he says, but feeling something toward God. Love. Now let's go back to these two fellows. Let's go back to I will and I won't. Remember the young fellow, the first one, he said, go, the father said, go out and work in my vineyard I won't he said I won't so he told the other boy go out and work in my vineyard he said I will and the first one that said I won't did he came back and did it he changed his heart you say well he changed his mind okay you can change your mind let, let me illustrate something. You change your mind. Well, what you're changing is not just your mind. You're changing your feelings. In this state, and in other states, in this modern society, we have what are called cooling off periods. Now, there, there's some people that ask if this is a law. You go down and buy something. On the spur of the minute, with your, your excitement and your emotions are way up high. I'm going to buy a new house and the law says you've got a cooling off period if you sign a contract it, it, it becomes kind of an iffy thing but a lot of people will say okay we'll give you a cooling off period go home and settle down you're going to spend a hundred two hundred three hundred thousand dollars on a house maybe you better go home and think about it and so you cool off you know what you did you know what's going on. You know what the contract looks like. But your heart was in it and said, I want this. My feelings. You go home and you think about it and you say, hey, maybe I was a little rash doing that. 
That's called a cooling off period. Sometimes a uh, producer of of goods will say, okay, like a car. You can take this car, sign for it, and if you don't like it, bring it back in a month and we'll give you your money back. Well, that gives you time. That's not a very, very smart policy, by the way. Because I think if you buy a car and you got in over your head 30 days later, you're going to get out of it. Your feelings are going to change. You knew all about the car. You knew all about the price. You knew everything. But your feelings change. That's what we're talking about here. The one boy said, I will not. His feelings changed. How? He said, I I know my father loves me. And I love him, and I made a mistake. His feelings changed. He knew his father. He knew all the information. He had all the information. He said, I'm going to change. So he went back and went to work. The other boy said, I will, and then turned around and didn't. It doesn't say he ever did it. He just didn't do it. His feelings were, I don't have to, and he didn't. So, I will and I won't. Mr. Do and Mr. Don't. Now we have to get back to that and face it ourselves. We know what God says in His Word. Am I going to do it? I will or I won't because I feel toward God.